church, you can have a seat. <clears throat> and I want to invite you to pray with me uh, as a church community, and we get the opportunity to pray for something very special that's happening this week. It is our annual vacation Bible school where kids from all over our church, all over our community come five days a week for a few hours in the morning to connect, to have fun, to hear about the love of God. This is an incredibly powerful week in the lives of many of our children and families. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, If anybody is in this room and you're involved, teenagers, adults, in helping to uh, get ready for vacation Bible school, maybe you've already been working or if you are going to be part of what's happening this weekend, would you come join me up here on the platform? We're not going to totally embarrass you, but we are a little, no, I'm kidding. We're not really. Go ahead and come on up forward. Absolutely. Give me, hey, let's give him a hand. Let's give him some thank yous. Just kind of line up here. I'm still jealous of your hair, Lizzie. That is awesome. I love it. So this is um, a lot of the people. Would you grab the mic over there for me? Uh, This is a lot of the people. This group represents about 30, 35, Beth, am I right? Um, People who are helping lead Vacation Bible School. Yes. This, this next week. Uh, so what we want to do is, man, thank you guys for being the hands and the feet and the face of our church because here's what's happening with Vacation Bible School. When kids come, this creates an opportunity for children, which is ages... K through six. Kindergarten through sixth grade to connect with one another, to understand who God is and make deposits that can last often the rest of their lives. Here's the other thing that it does. Every single day, there's a focus, there's a lesson, there's a lot of fun, there's some truth from scripture. And for those of, our, of the kids that come who have moms and dads or grandparents who are followers of Jesus, it creates contact points. It creates conversation points to say, what are you learning about God? It gives parents an opportunity to disciple their own children more effectively. Vacation Bible School is all about discipling kids and helping families disciple their own children. This is right at the heart of who we are and what we're doing. And so, Beth, would you give us a sense, this is Beth, if you don't know her, a fantastic children's ministry leader, would you give us a sense of maybe one or two just key prayer requests that you have as we're getting ready to go into this week? Yeah. Um, Good morning, everyone. Uh, So, as we are still coming out of this pandemic, we really didn't know what VBS would look like. but we uh, really prayed and tried so hard to find a VBS where families would still feel safe bringing their kids. And uh, I'm really excited about the learning content. So our VBS is called Treasured, and kids will be hearing every single day about how they are priceless to God. So our big prayer request uh, for this week is that all of us, kids, leaders, each and every one of us would know just how much our Father loves us and just how much he wants to have a relationship with us, and that that relationship and that restoration happens through Jesus and only through Jesus. Yeah, that's awesome. God has plans for each one of you guys that you don't even know about yet to connect with parents and kids this week. So I just want to pray for you. I want us to pray together as a church family for what's going to happen this week. So would you join me? Father God, we thank you for the fact that you do love us. You've told us in what is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, that you sent your son to die to forgive our sins so that we could have eternal life because you so loved the world. And so God, that, that image of your, the treasure that you have for us isn't really about us. It is about you and it is about your love. But to know that we were made in your image and that we are loved by you Enough, Jesus, that you came to live and to die and to rise again from the dead, that we might have eternal life because of your love for us. 
God, that is the greatest message in the universe. And I pray this weekend, in the midst of this week, in the midst of everything else going on, the activities, the fun, the different things that will happen differently than we planned or whatever the situations are, God, would you give us hearts of, of grace and love? I pray especially for every one of these leaders and all the different roles that they will play. Bring them to the church campus for every time that they're going to be here this week with an expectation that you want to use them to convey the love and the value for these kids to create a safe environment where you are lifted up and these kids are connected with. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to the children who will be coming, those that we know well, those who have already registered and we're not even sure of their names, we don't know who they are, kids in our community, kids from the surrounding neighborhood. God, we pray that our church could be the expression of the love of Christ this weekend. And for all of us who will not physically be on campus this week, God, would you continuously bring these faces to mind? Would you continuously help us to partner in prayer for how you are discipling kids and families through our local church? God, we're offering ourselves to you and asking that you would make your name great as you reveal yourself to us and through us to those around us. It's in Christ's name and for your glory we ask this. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. We look forward to hearing what happens this week. You can have a seat. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles now if you've got them. If not, you're free to use the ones in the rack in front of you. Although, um, these days I always feel funny saying that because when I don't have my Bible, I just pull this out, right? And so, however you can get a hold of the Bible, we encourage you to open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 22, as we get into Scripture together this morning. Uh, To lead us into this morning's passage, I want to play for you a brief clip from the recent uh, serial TV program, The Chosen, Many of you I know have been watching that, a depiction of the life of Christ. Uh, Great show, very, very well done. Uh, Understand that there is some character development and backstory that's not in the Bible to make it work for TV, and that's okay, but uh, it's not a substitute for reading the Bible. But I love the way The Chosen brings to life some of what is in Scripture. The clip that you're about to see is a conversation between a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, uh, who Jesus had extensive discussions with in John chapter 3 in Scripture, and one of Jesus' followers, Mary from Magdala, Mary the Magdalene. Uh, Jesus had cast some demons out of Mary, and just to set the stage for what you're going to see if you haven't watched this yet, Uh, In the television program, uh, Nicodemus had seen her demon-possessed, tried to cast the demons out of her, and failed. She later encountered Jesus, not knowing who he was. He healed her, and later, now the conversation you're going to see, Nicodemus sees a woman miraculously healed, and he's trying to figure out what happened. So let's just watch this together. It's you. It's real. No, no, please, don't be frightened. My name is Nicodemus. I, I ministered to you, Lilith. I don't answer to that name. I am Mary. I was born Mary. But you were called Lilith, yes? Please, I must go. No, no please, Mary. I, I am desperate for your help, Mary. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. I'm visiting from Jerusalem. I'm a man of God. And I believe... You have experienced a miracle, Mary. Are you really a Pharisee? Yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't... 
I'm not here to enforce Jewish law. So how do you know who I am? You really don't remember me at all. I burned incense. I don't remember. It's all a blur. I can't go back into that. No, no, I don't want you to. I can't even imagine. But you you are healed. That that much is clear. I just want to understand how it happened. It makes two of us. <laughs> How long after my visit did you feel the change? It wasn't anything you did. It was someone else. Someone else? He called me Mary. He said, I am his. I am redeemed. It was so. Who did this? I don't know his name. And even if I did, I could not tell you. Why not? His time for men to know has not yet come. His time for men? <laughs> he performs miracles and seeks no credit? Well, what does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I... I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. And now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. I was one way. Now, I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. With that sort of artfully worded line, Mary in this uh, program pretty succinctly summarizes how Jesus works in a person's life. This is what is often referred to as one's personal testimony. Here's who I was. Here's how I encountered Jesus. Here is the impact and the life change that has resulted. The new me now has a purpose. That's what we've been seeing throughout our study of the book of Acts, that, that God's mission is that God's people make disciples by showing other people Jesus. We make disciples by showing other people Jesus, helping people see who Christ is from the Bible through the mouths of his people. That's that's God's plan. That's God's mission. Telling our own story of how Jesus changed us and is still changing us is one of the most potent ways that we put him on display. And that's what's taking place here in Acts chapter 22 that we're going to look at this morning. You heard it read earlier. Let me briefly summarize the end of chapter 21 so we've kind of caught up on, on what's happening here. We've been following throughout this narrative book uh, the journeys of the Apostle Paul. 
And you'll recall that he's headed toward Jerusalem and he was told by many people, some of whom were prophets, that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be mistreated. And when some of his friends heard this, they were like, don't go, don't go. But he's like, no, I know that that's true, but God is calling me to go to Jerusalem anyway. So he gets to Jerusalem knowing that the Pharisees, the group that Nicodemus was part of, the group that he himself used to be part of, will turn on him because in their eyes he has abandoned their cause. He knows he's going to get in trouble. So when he gets to Jerusalem, he meets with James and the other apostles and he starts telling them all the incredible things that God has been doing on his travels. We've been reading about those for several chapters. How new churches are starting outside of Jewish territory, how thousands and thousands of people are finding eternal life in Jesus. They're very encouraged by this. They're excited about it. But they're also concerned about how now that they're right in the heart of Jewish territory, the city of Jerusalem, how the Jewish leaders are going to respond to the Apostle Paul once they hear he's arrived. And so they tell him, hey, look, why don't you go to the temple in the middle of the city and participate in a public Jewish ritual to show them that you're not throwing away Jewish law, you're just preaching Jesus. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul is all too happy to oblige. He's like, sure, I'll do it. He's a Jewish guy. He's like, when I'm in Jewish territory, I'll take on Jewish ritual. When I'm outside of Jewish territory, I don't do all that stuff, and non-Jewish people don't need to do it either. The point is, as he said later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. In other words, I'm going to do whatever I can do so that secondary issues don't obscure Jesus. So here I am, a Jewish guy, and I'm in a Jewish community, so I'm going to function like a Jewish guy so that people don't get hung up on whether or not I'm doing the right rituals, and hopefully that clears that question away so that we can talk about Jesus. So he takes some other men, he goes to the temple, he goes through the ritual, there's a seven-day waiting period, he's doing all the right things, but unfortunately, despite this good faith effort, at the end of the seven days, the Jewish leaders incite the crowd into a mob. They make some false accusations about how he's desecrated the temple, which he doesn't actually, he didn't actually do, but they believe it. And the penalty for that is death. And so this mob seizes him, starts physically beating him on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They're getting ready to kill him. He's only saved from a violent death when the Roman soldiers come out and arrest him and try to get control of the situation and quell the crowd. Here he is in chains, just like the prophets said he would be. Now that leads us up to our passage this morning. Because as he's now sort of protected by these Roman uh, soldiers, but, but the mob is still out there screaming for his head, he is given permission to address the crowd and explain himself. And what he does is he uses the opportunity to say that he was once one way and now he's completely different. And the thing that happened in between was Jesus. We pick up that narrative in Acts chapter 22 starting in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they even grew more quiet. They're actually listening to him. They're calming down. And he begins telling them the first thing. The very first thing is he says, I was wrong about Jesus. This is the person I once was, and I was wrong about Jesus. 
He begins by saying, I'm a Jew. I was born somewhere else, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the best-known rabbis in uh, the city at that time. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you all are this day, I persecuted this way, the way of Jesus, to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. The high priest and the whole council can tell you. You know what he's saying? Guys, I was once you! Look what you're doing. You're literally trying to beat me to death because you think I violated some little obscure part of Jewish law. That's how zealous you are for your religious observance. And he's like, that was me. I was more zealous than all of you. That's who I was. I was beating people. I was imprisoning them because they were following Jesus. And I thought that violated the Old Testament. But then Paul got a shock on the road to Damascus. We saw this earlier in the book of Acts. He now recounts it for us. Beginning of verse 6. As I was on my way uh, heading toward Damascus, uh, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So it's the brightest part of the day. And he's like, that light was nothing compared to how God just blasted me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This was the shock that came for the Apostle Paul. He thought he was fighting the Jesus movement for God. That's what he thought. These these Jesus freaks are deviants. They're, They're going off the right path, and it's my job to enforce the right path and to punish these guys because they're following Jesus, not God. And then he gets the shock of his life. God talks to him, and he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus. You're who? He was fighting Jesus for God, but then he learns Jesus was God, so now he realizes he's attacking God himself. I was totally wrong about Jesus. That's who I was, he's telling them. That's who I was. It is so important for him and for anybody else to understand when we've got Jesus wrong. Because if I don't think I have Jesus wrong, I'm not open to learn anything new about him, right? I think I've got it down. He was getting Jesus wrong back then. People were constantly, they still are today. Regularly, people around us, all around us, ultimately see Jesus and his church and his word as a judge. The view of Jesus as a judge. He's ready to condemn you. You know, if you're a good enough person and you work hard enough, he might be gracious enough to accept you, but you've got to clean yourself up a little bit before you can come to church, before you can come to God, before you can come to Jesus. That's a mindset that a lot of people have. It's wrong. We're wrong about Jesus. We need to see him as a savior, one who cleans us up for us not one whom we have to clean up to go see. That's not the only way people are wrong about Jesus, though, is it? There's lots of ways to be wrong about Jesus. Another one is thinking that, you know, I've always believed in God, always believed in Jesus, when in fact I may never have actually repented of my sin and trusted in him as my Savior the way the Bible describes 
like I'm wrong about Jesus. I'm wrong about what it means to follow him or believe in him. I use those words, but what does that mean? How do I actually become a follower of his? Stick with us. We'll get there in just a moment. But for so many in a a, a church culture like the United States, it can be easy to say, of course, I've just always believed in God, so I think I'm fine with Jesus, and I'm not. I'm wrong about who he is and how to follow him. One more way that people are wrong about Jesus, and this one applies especially to those of us who are already Christians and his followers. It's a kind of thinking that, although we wouldn't really say these words in our head, the thinking kind of goes like this. I have repented of my sins the way the Bible says. And Jesus is my Savior. So I'm good. I'm good, right? I mean, I know I need to learn and grow and I'm not perfect yet, but I really, I'm okay with Jesus. I've got that box checked. Now I'm living my life. But then the anxieties and the other idols in my life prove that Jesus is not yet my all. (laughs) He's not yet my security. He's not yet the absolute everything in my life. The Jesus I'm seeing is not yet fully accurate. The point is simply this. Paul wasn't just wrong about Jesus. So are you. So am I. There is nobody in this room, including the guy speaking right now, who has Jesus 100% right and who sees and experiences the Son of God in all of his fullness with total accuracy. No matter where you are in pursuing Jesus, which could be all the way from, I'm not even sure I'm interested in pursuing Jesus, I'm just here this morning because somebody dragged me along all the way to people who think that Jesus is the most important thing in life and everybody in between. No matter where you are, we all have more to learn and to experience about Jesus as Savior and as King and as the Son of God. And this is so important because it's a key. It is the absolute necessary key to growing as a disciple, to coming to know God better and experiencing more of him. Because seeing and experiencing Jesus is how a person's life changes. But I won't see him more fully if I think I've already got him figured out. The understanding that I am not right about Jesus opens us up to ask questions and learn from him. And that's the heart of a person whose life is ready for powerful, positive change. The Apostle Paul had to realize, I am totally, despite his great learning, his vast religious education, he was totally wrong about Jesus. How are you potentially wrong about Jesus today? Once you know you are, once you realize there's probably things about Jesus, ideas I have about him that aren't right, ways that I've not yet fully experienced him, what do you do about it? How do you grow more fully? That's the next part, kind of right at the heart of our text. The first thing we see is that the Apostle Paul had to realize he's wrong about Jesus. Next, he asks two absolutely key questions that completely change the course of his life. The first occurs in verse 8. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? We've already seen why this is important. Because when I realize I need to learn more about Jesus, I'm now open 
to the possibility. I'm willing to hear. But now look at the answer he got. I am Jesus. The one that you think you're serving is actually the one you're attacking. So he needed to understand clearly who Jesus was as the Savior, the Son of God. But notice the second question as well in verse 10. Having recognized that, what must I do? If I'm seeing you rightly, what do I do in response to that? You see, once you know Jesus is God, once you know Jesus is in charge, the next logical step is to stop making your own decisions about the best way to live and start asking the author of life, what do you have for me now, every day, in this very moment, for the next 10 years of my life? Those are the questions of a follower of Jesus. The next few verses narrate Paul's temporary blindness which is an important part of this story. It was a physical uh, experience of his that was metaphorical in its nature. Uh, it was, a, in other words, kind of a word picture or an experience picture of what was going on. Verse 11, Since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And a guy named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. There's this temporary period where the Apostle Paul was struck blind, led by hand to Damascus, and God didn't allow him to see again physically until he talked to this guy Ananias and heard Ananias tell him who Jesus is. And then he was allowed to see. The point is obvious, right? Paul, all your great learning, all your great zeal for the things of religion, you think you're seeing God clearly, but you are blind. How do you get unblind? How do you see God clearly? You go, talk to somebody who knows him, who can open up the Bible and show you who he is. Only by asking these two key questions, who are you, Lord, and what must I do? And then following through on the answers, did Paul receive his sight back? He saw the path to real life, and he started walking it. And he received two great things in response to these two great questions. The first is eternal salvation. The second was a whole new life mission. Let's look at both of them just briefly. Down to verses 15 and 16. You will be a witness for him, this is Ananias speaking to Paul, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. That last statement there in verse 16 is a call to repentance and faith. He's saying, Paul, you've got sin in your life. You've got to beg Jesus to cleanse you and forgive you, trust him for that, and then be baptized. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you become a follower of Christ. In other words, Ananias explained what Paul needed to do. It wasn't just enough to know that Jesus is the Son of God. That's necessary, but by itself it's not enough. He needed to act on it. He needed to know, the Apostle Paul needed to know that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, he needed to know how Jesus can become my Savior, how his sacrifice can pay for my personal sins. 
You see, again, there's this idea of, is it enough to say, I, I believe in Jesus? Well, it depends. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? The Bible's really clear about what that's supposed to mean. In the language of the Bible, it means we repent of our sins. We admit that it's sin, we turn away from it, and we totally trust in Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf to clean us up. We don't try to clean ourselves up. We rely on him. We accept his forgiveness and embrace him as a Lord and Savior. So, so how does that look? How does that work? How does one do that? I want to take a minute and explain how that can look by walking us through what sometimes is referred to as a sinner's prayer. The time a person for the first time drives a stake in the ground and says to God, I'm trusting you for salvation. It's important to note that it's not the words of any particular prayer that save us. This is no magic religious mantra. It's, it's the heart that is acknowledging my sin and my need for Jesus' forgiveness and cleansing that saves us. But that heart needs to be expressed to God in words. So here's what I'd like to do for a moment. I'd like to ask you, if you're willing, to just close your eyes for a couple minutes. The only reason for that is just to block out distractions. I'm going to walk us through what a sinner's prayer might look like pausing in between each phrase. And if this sort of, these words represent what is in your heart right now, you can pray them to God just even silently in your own mind right where you're sitting. God hears, he knows. You say, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I need and want your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin. I recognize your mercy is a gift. It's not based on anything I've done to deserve it. Cleanse me, make me your child. By faith I receive you as the Son of God. as the Savior and Lord of my life. From now on, help me live for you with you in control. Amen. Friends, if that is what's really going on in your heart and you pray that prayer to God, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you prayed that prayer, you need to tell someone. You need to tell someone. Maybe you came to church today with a Christian that you know well. I encourage you to tell them. Go out to lunch afterwards. Tell them what's going on in your life. Uh, our pastors and elders would be glad to talk with you after the church service because we need to start taking some basic steps on this new path of following Jesus. And God means for us to learn and to do that with other people. That's actually what the Apostle Paul experienced next. But the first thing he experienced was salvation. The freedom from all the sin that he didn't even know he had because he thought he was such a religious guy. He finally saw Jesus clearly, repented, called on his name, and was baptized. He received salvation, but he received one more thing. He received a whole new mission in life. He received a whole new mission in life. Verses 13 and 14. Uh, again, Ananias speaking. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, 
to see the righteous one, that is the Savior Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Paul didn't just get freedom from his sin, which was incredible by itself. He got a whole new mission in life, a whole new reason for living. Those two always go together, by the way. They always go together. We never come to Jesus and just get forgiven for our sins and then go on as the same people. We get forgiven of our sins and then we get given a whole new purpose and meaning in life. Now the Apostle Paul is a disciple of Jesus. He got onto Jesus' mission. Paul's new life purpose was to help other people see what he had come now to know and see about Jesus. In other words, his mission is to make disciples. His mission is to make other disciples of Jesus. We learned two important things about what that means in the remainder of this passage. First of all, to be on mission with Jesus is relational, and secondly, it's expansive. It's relational and it's expansive. Here's what I mean. By relational, I mean the Apostle Paul followed Jesus in relationship with other people. Like we already saw this in, in the passage, and I didn't point it out earlier because I wanted to come back to it now. If we back up a little bit, the Apostle Paul's there on the road to Damascus. He's asking Jesus these two questions. Who are you? Jesus tells him directly, I'm Jesus. Oh my goodness, I've been wrong about you all along. Yeah, wake up. And then he asked the next great question, what do I do? you notice anything interesting about the response that Jesus gives him? Look down at your Bibles again. Read verse 10. Here he is, the Apostle Paul. His life's being changed. He's like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, uh, go to Damascus and talk to a guy. What? Go to Damascus and talk to a guy? Do, do you have any instructions for me? I'm all ears. He's like, go talk to this guy. If you go back earlier in the book of Acts, you get the encounter of Ananias and Jesus appears to him in a vision. He says, hey, I'm going to send this guy Paul to you. And he's like, Paul, that's the guy that kills us. I don't want to talk to that guy. He's freaking out. He doesn't want to talk to Paul. She's like, I don't care. I got a mission. You got, I got a message. You got to give it to him. Here's the message. Here's what you tell him. He's like, I don't want to do that. Jesus says, do it. Ananias doesn't want to talk to Paul. Paul's not ready to talk to Ananias. He wants to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, you guys go talk to each other. What is going on here? It's like Jesus needs a little bit of help. This is not the most efficient way to run an operation, Jesus, you know? You can imagine your boss at work and you're like, okay, I got this project I'm working on. What do you want me to do? And they're like, um, well, I just told, you know, Susie over there what I want you to do, so go talk to her. You're like, what? <laughs> Tell me what you want me to do. Jesus is like, no, go talk to Ananias. Why? Why didn't he just answer Paul's second question directly? What must I do, Lord? Well, here's what you do. He was talking to him directly. He could have told him more. He chose not to. Why? Why not cut out the middleman? Because modern American concepts of organizational efficiency are not super high on Jesus' list. It's because this is always Jesus' plan. The mission of making disciples is always relational. It's people rubbing shoulders with people. Who makes disciples of Jesus? Does God do that when he just zaps people from on high? Almost never. 
He didn't even do that here. Do you notice that? He did zap Paul from on high. (laughs) But he didn't even finish the conversion there. Even in this case, Paul was not converted on the road to Damascus. He was converted once he got to Damascus. And Ananias explained the gospel to him. That's how God operates. The people of God make people of God. Disciples of Jesus make more disciples of Jesus as they show other people who Jesus is from the Bible. That's God's plan. Not just pastors or evangelists or missionaries, but every person who becomes a follower of Jesus is told, go make disciples of all people. You see, these days, it's tempting to follow Jesus in a way that's either solo or shallow. Solo or shallow. Solo is, you know, kind of stereotypical. It's like you you blow into church, you experience what goes on, and then you bolt for the parking lot as soon as the service is over. Never really talk to anybody. Uh, You don't sign up for small groups. You tend to avoid social events. You know, pretty much anything the church does that would cause us to rub shoulders with other people, it's like, eh, not really interested. I'm going to come because I know that that's important, but then I'm going to leave, and I don't really connect with people. That's a very common, very strong temptation for all of us, following Jesus solo. And by the way, can we just be honest and say that in this day and age when every church, including ours, is live streaming, this is even more of a temptation? The technology that allows us to live stream has been such a blessing this past year and a half. (laughs) Such a blessing. Infinitely better to send out a live stream than to have no connection with our church community at all. It's given us a voice. It's given us a way to continue to identify and gather around Scripture. But that doesn't mean it's a universal good. Nothing in this earth ever is. There is a downside, right? There is a downside. I was just talking with a brother about this yesterday. We were both reflecting on how, oh, yeah, there's times when I know full well I could be at church and I probably should be, but you know what happens. One of those crazy Saturdays, working like a madman. I wake up, it's late. I I wake up, I'm stiff, I'm sore. The kids are cranky, we're going to be late. Oh, let's just turn it on and watch it on TV today. Right? And we're watching church. We're not actually relationally connecting together and experiencing together. God's mission is relational, it's not solo. But we're not always solo. A lot of times we can connect with people, but we can also be shallow. And what I mean by that is shallow relationally. You know, this is when, as a Christian, I do make friends with other Christians, but the friendships always stay uh, light. Um, We we keep the the conversation on safe subjects. Rarely, if ever, do we get real with people about what I'm struggling with, who God is, what does he actually say in this part of the Bible, what does that mean, and how does that relate to us? Can we think that through together? Because we're probably better thinking it through together than either one of us is on our own. Like If you have lots of relationships with other Christians and they never go to that level, you might be engaging with people, but doing it in a way that's more just kind of keeping it on the surface. But God's mission is deep, It's not shallow. Our Lord's instruction is to be people who share the truths of God from the Bible with one another. It's great to get together and just like have fun too. Go fishing or play golf or do whatever it is you like. That's awesome. But also getting relationships that go deep. That's how we show one another Jesus and grow. God's mission is relational. But we learn one last thing in this passage. It is also expansive. 
God's mission is expansive. That's the last thing that the Apostle Paul discovers in this passage. He's had this wonderful conversion experience. He's there, he's in Jerusalem now, he's a whole new guy, and he's getting ready to just lay his life down in serving Jesus. And he knows it's going to cost him. He's, he's the zealous guy who was out here punishing other Christians, and he knows that the people that he used to work with are going to double punish him because he was one of them, and now he's a Christian, and so he's like a traitor to the cause. And he's ready. He's ready. He's like, I'm going to lay my life down for Jesus, whatever it takes. Here I am in Jerusalem, Lord. All these people know me. I'm going to serve you. And surprisingly, Jesus says, no, you're not. Not here. Verse 17. I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I fell in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony about me. Jesus says, you're going to serve me, but you're going to go far away. And interestingly, Paul starts arguing with Jesus. Never a good idea, by the way. I'll just throw that one in for free. Um, arguing with God rarely works. But that's what he does. He's like, well, God, I mean, look at the words, verse 19. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Even when the blood of Stephen, this is from chapter 8 earlier in Acts, your witness was being shed. I myself was standing there approving it and watching over all who killed him. You see what Paul is saying? He's like, Jesus, you've got a good thing going on here by saving me, Right? You changed my life. All of these people know that I was against you and now I'm for you. What stronger witness to your power could there be other than my changed life? Man, you send me off to Greece or some other place where people, they don't even know about the Jewish temple. They don't even know about the Old Testament. They have no idea who I am. Man, I guess I could talk about you, but anybody could talk about you there. If I'm here, I'm so much good to you. This is where I should be. Jesus responded, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Oddly enough, Paul lost the argument. Imagine that. (laughs) Why are you going to send me away to people that I don't know and who don't know me far away where I don't think I have any, any cachet, any basis upon which to talk about you? Well, I don't know if I can explain all of the reasons that that God had for doing that. He doesn't tell us all. But one thing we certainly learned from this, the mission that God put the Apostle Paul on is expansive. By that I mean it's always outward oriented. It's, It's chasing, it's moving, it's pursuing people in new places. Paul couldn't stay on familiar ground, serving Jesus with people he knew in an environment that he was used to, where he spoke the language and he understood how people thought. He couldn't just stay there. And if we're followers of Jesus, neither can we. Neither can we. A church that's effective at making disciples will always be expansive, always outward oriented, pursuing new people, welcoming people in. And let's be honest, that is totally against our nature, isn't it? I finally get comfortable here. I get to know the place. I get to know how we talk and how we think. And I get to know people and I get to know names and I get comfortable with them. And then I want to stay and I want to enjoy that. That's human nature. But it quickly starts playing into our selfishness, doesn't it? I've got my group. I've got my people. But you see, church isn't a clique. It's a family that is always reaching out and inviting people in. 
I've gotten to see some of this happen over the years here in our church. I, I want to end this morning with a quick story, true story. Several years ago, Amy and I were in a community life group, a small group. And uh, we were there with Jim and Kathy, and uh, eventually I had said, I was leading this group, and I'm like, Jim, you can lead this group. And Jim, being the you gotcha guy he is, took it over and started leading the group, and, and I pulled back, and then he was leading, and then the group grew, and we got up to like 15 or 16 people. It starts to push the definition of small in small group, you know? That's like a lot of people. And we were together for several years, and people had, had come to the group, and we had built a lot of trust and a lot of community. We were getting into scripture. We were having fun together. It was great. And then Jim and I start talking, and we're like, you know, um, I wonder if it's time for us to like expand this thing out. Because just starting new groups from scratch is a really bad way to try to sustain growth. It's like, we're a group that already knows how to do this. What if we branch off and create new, two groups and let more people come in? I'll never forget the night we pitched that to the group for the first time. Like, nobody wanted to do it, right? And I don't think we did either, to be honest, because <laughs> it's like, we do know each other. We've loved each other. We've invested in these relationships. But, but we kept talking about the vision. There's more people in our church that aren't even in community life groups. How are they going to find this kind of community? And so we talked about it and talked about it. Finally, we just realized we just have to do it. So uh, Jim and I put our heads together and said, guys, why don't we do this? We'll take eight of us and branch off this way and eight of us and branch off that way. You guys go there with Jim. You guys go here with me. And everybody was like, we don't want to leave each other. But everybody did it. Because they believed in the vision. We didn't want to in our own kind of personal opinions. But we understood the value of it. So the two groups branched off, became two new groups of eight, which left plenty of room for other people to join. Other people did. Somebody else started leading the group that I was in, developed another leader. They started taking over. More people joined. I, I, I didn't have time today to actually, or before this morning, to actually go look at the numbers, but I believe a third group, Dave and Sandy's, if I'm right, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, has also now branched off of the second group that had come out. We now have at least three small groups that I didn't get all the numbers, but I guarantee there's like three times as many people. There's probably 40, 45 plus people involved in these three groups. What started with about 10 several years ago grew to 16 and then branched off, and all three of those groups are doing very well. A couple of years ago, the group I'm currently in, this is a little while ago now, um, we brought up the idea at one point of branching our group off because it's gotten fairly large and there's relationships where people love each other and we've invested and it's good. And one of the people who had joined the group since we branched off the first one, if you're following all this, I remember said like, oh, I hope we don't like actually split off because I love what we have here. We've invested in these relationships. And I just sat back, I didn't even say anything, but in my mind, I just reveled in the beauty of that. I'm like, you have no idea how beautiful what you just said is. Because if 16 people a few years ago hadn't faced that exact thing you're feeling right now and chosen to branch to create space for people to be expansive, you wouldn't even be here right now enjoying something that you've been able to achieve. It's vision. The mission is always expansive, always reaching out, making space, inviting in. But that confronts our selfishness, doesn't it? It does mine. I'd rather just hang with people I know and do my thing. 
It's so easy to sit out in the atrium after a church service and talk to friends I know and other people are walking all around me and sometimes I don't even see them. Some of those people are here at the church for the first time. Does anybody see me? Making room for new relationships will confront our love of comfort and our selfish desire to hang with our people. But church is an ever-expanding family. And if you find you're too busy to make space to pursue new relationships, then you're far busier than Jesus ever intended you to be. Friends, the Apostle Paul told a mob that wanted his head that I was once one way. Now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was Jesus. Who are you? What must I do? Between the old you and the new you, Jesus is the thing that happens in between. You need to experience Jesus as Savior, forgiving your sins. And you need to experience Jesus as Lord, redefining your objectives and goals in life and redirecting your path onto his relational and expansive mission of making him known. Because God's people are to make disciples by showing Jesus to other people. I believe that's what God wants us to be as his church. That's what we're committed to doing by his grace to the best of our ability. As the worship team comes back up, give us a chance to respond to God in thought, in prayer, and in song. I'd like to pray for us. God, as we think about the way you've transformed our lives, this is who we were. This is what you did. This is how you changed us. We realize we have a powerful platform in our own story to commend the gospel to those who do not yet know you. God, would you make us faithful as people to put the gospel on display by talking about how you've been the thing between the old us and the new us. And yet, God, we recognize that that is not just for proclaiming the gospel to people who have never heard it. This is the way we continue to disciple one another as the old me who is following you but is still wrestling with sin and I encounter you, and you free me from that sin, I can still say to my brothers and sisters in Christ, even now, here's who I've been, here's what God is making me, and here's how Jesus is the thing in between. Lord, lead us to lead one another to see the work you're doing in our lives, to rejoice in the work you're doing in other people's lives. And as we lift you up, we pray that you would transform more and more people around this world. This week in our vacation Bible school, throughout the rest of the summer and everything that we're doing, God, would you lead people to experience life in you. For our good and your glory, we, your church, ask these things in your name. Amen.